So uh, our parenting, Dennis and I, currently spans uh, the ages. All right, we have three kids in college, and parenting adults, as I've talked to you about, is different. It's a different kind of hard, a lot different than parenting our uh, 16-year-old son, Judson, and a lot, lot different than parenting our 7-year-old deacon. But one thing that spans the ages is the instruction, be good and don't get into any trouble. Now, I'm sure you've heard this once or twice from your own parents, maybe. Be good and don't get into any trouble. Now, it's a little more direct than don't do anything I wouldn't do. I mean, that one could be said tongue-in-cheek, right? Because you did everything. It might be true, at least in the current sort of way, because in your kid's eyes, you're like so square. So the context of don't do anything I wouldn't do, well, that's open to many interpretations. But be good. Don't get in any trouble. Holds. Now, have your parents ever said, get into good or necessary trouble? Have you ever been told that? Go get yourself into good trouble. Go pick the right kind of fight. Now, of course, those words, get into good trouble, come from a man named John Lewis, who first said those words on the Edward Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. He was commemorating the tragic events of Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday occurred March 7, 1965, where protesters who were marching were beaten by law enforcement officers while crossing the bridge. The protesters were marching from Selma to the capital of Montgomery, Alabama, and they were protesting the shooting of Jimmy Lee Jackson a 26-year-old church deacon by state trooper James Bonard Fowler. Just as they crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, they were ordered to disperse. And moments later, police assaulted them with tear gas, bullwhips, and billy clubs. Lewis, then 25, was one of the leaders of the march on Bloody Sunday, and he was injured and hospitalized with 17 other protesters. Now, the march and the violence done to the protesters happened to be broadcast on national TV, and within days, protest broke out in more than 80 cities. Martin Luther King Jr. himself led a second march there in Selma on the Edward Pez Bridge just days later, and within a week, President Johnson began the process of what would later become the Civil Rights Act. Now, if you read newspapers in the South, you would have read that Lewis and others like him were causing trouble for their fellow blacks and everyone else in the South. They were troublemakers. So when Lewis later stood by the same bridge, he recounted this by saying, get into good and necessary kinds of trouble. Now, our text today, with the meeting of Elijah and Ahab, when Ahab sees Elijah, he says, There he is, the troubler of Israel. Elijah, the troubler of Israel. Now, what I want you to see this morning is that Elijah is actually bringing the good trouble. And the true troubler of Israel, the one who brings the bad trouble, is Ahab himself. Okay, let's get into it. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the 
third year. Okay, so here we are, what? Year three of a drought. Year three of no rain in Israel. Just to confirm this, in Luke 4.25, Jesus will say about this event that the heavens were shut for three years and six months. Now, here in the West, y'all, we can go a few days, a lot of days, without any rain. But three and a half years. Now think about how devastating such a drought would be. Not just some rain, not just a little rain, but for three and a half years, there is no rain in Israel. Now two weeks ago, we talked about the widow and her son and how they were out of flour and oil and even water was dwindling, and they are out picking up sticks, building a fire, awaiting their death. And now we are somewhere in the neighborhood of two years later. Imagine the many that are facing that fate. Many more widows, many more sons, many more who have lost harvest and food. This is the recession of recessions for Israel. And when there is recession, there is loss, a scaling back, where the flourishing you once experienced has receded. When that comes, what do you do? What do you do? Now, I think a pretty common response is what Ahab does, blame. We're coming up on midterm elections, and what are the politicians and the talking heads discussing inflation, rising cost, interest rates. Who's to blame? That guy's to blame. No, no, no. That guy's to blame. It can be small things, by the way. When the remote isn't in the right spot in my house, who's to blame? Well, everyone. Who do you blame when things recede? When trial and suffering comes, when your creaturely comforts, when remotes disappear and broken things happen, when church doors get broke down, who do you blame? There's always someone to blame. So when Ahab meets Elijah and charges him the troubler of Israel, he is assigning blame. There he is, the troubler of Israel. There he is, the one who's responsible for all this mess, all this loss, all this economic downturn. Look at, all, look at all who's hungry and thirsty out there. Look, look, here is your man, the one who brings trouble. Now, verse 1 does seem to back this up, at least in part, because the Lord says to Elijah, the time has come. Go show yourself to Ahab. Why? Because I will send rain upon the, the earth or the, the land. This is the purpose behind the command. Go, God says, so that I may send rain. Ahab calls Elijah the trouble of Israel because Elijah said three and a half years before that there would be no rain in Israel except by his word. So there he is, the troubler of Israel. And in James, the epistle, this is echoed in verse 517. James says, Elijah prayed. He was a man like us. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. What caused the trouble of no rain? Well, James says it was Elijah's prayers. 
God says to Elijah, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain. So Elijah, the troubler of Israel, went. Again, like our previous text, Elijah obeys the word of the Lord. We aren't given any insight into the moment or the interior life at this point of Elijah. Now, we will be later on, but at this point, he's told and he goes. And the question hangs over us, would we? Would we go to the place where everyone knows that we are the troubler? Like there's something intrinsic in all of us as humans. It's shame. Shame is that thing that would cause us to not want to go. Like, have you ever been in a situation where trouble has been caused and someone, some authority figure, parent or teacher, is trying to assign blame? Who did this? Was it you? And the light shines on you in that moment, even though you know you didn't do anything wrong, what do you feel? Shame. Your mind might even start to mess with you, like, with questions, well, did I? Was it me? Even though you know it wasn't you, that's shame. So if you know all eyes will be on you, especially the eyes of those in power and those who have authority, would you go? I mean, it's easy for us to rush past this, the faith and trust of Elijah in this moment to go and face his accuser. There he is, the troubler of Israel. And just so you don't miss it, the next words, the famine was great in Samaria. The place of Ahab, the place of his court, the place of his kingdom, here the famine was particularly painful and severe. Things are very bleak. There will be no rain except for my word. Three and a half years later, there is no rain. Famine, drought, destruction, desolation. People are feasting on the dust. And when you're feasting on the dust, who do you blame? Imagine you're the cause of all the dust, and now you must go after, after hiding all this time, you must go before all of those who would accuse you. Have you ever seen those press conferences where an athlete or a celebrity or a public figure has to face the music? What do you see when the light is cast upon them? Well, you see shame. And most, in response to that shame, hide, deflect, redirect. Elijah is about to walk into it because the Lord bids him to go, and he goes. He goes to show himself, to reveal himself, to be unhidden. Why? Because of the word of the Lord. The man of God and the word of God, bound by faith, trust, and calling. Now, in verse 3, the scene shifts. We're taken to Ahab's court, and what do we discover? Well, another prophet. Like, if you're reading this the first time, now, I don't know how many of you do your daily quiet times in 1 Kings or not, but it's like some of the stuff that I'm, I've read before but like haven't revisited a lot before this sermon series, and I'm like, oh, man. Like, there is another prophet, another man of God, here in, of all places, the court of the most wicked king and king, queen. And my thinking as I first read it is, oh, his life must be full of great compromise. He is in the room where it happens. And yet, he isn't struck down dead around the table where he gives counsel. How can this be? And then we're even more confounded when we read in verse 3, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Remember, fear of the Lord, if you're not sure, is that 
feeling of great love and devotion, so much so where you do not want any sort of distance to grow between yourself and the object of that love and devotion. It is a type of fidelity and loyal love. In other words, Obadiah is the Lord's, and he is in the king's court, summoned by the king to direct and to act. How can this be? And then we see in verse 4, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred of them, hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And just so you don't forget that, it's repeated again later by Obadiah. Obadiah is a faithful prophet protecting and providing for God's other prophets. And the irony is thick, right? Baal, the God who is the supplier of water to his worshipers, and even Obadiah is more effective than Baal because he provides water in a famine and a drought to the prophets of the Lord. Prophets hiding in the caves of Baal. Even here, we're reminded, the Lord provides for his own. Now, Obadiah is given a message from Ahab, verse 5. Go through the land to all the springs and all the valleys. Go look for water. Go look and see if you can find grass. Any place where our cattle can eat. Obadiah and Elijah, both names mean servant of Yahweh, but they both radically differ in their place, their position, and their way of serving Yahweh. Elijah confronts from outside the court, while Obadiah works from the inside, preserving the word of Yahweh within the camp, subverting the official policies of the court, acting all the while as a chief steward of the court. Now let's pause here and reflect a second on calling. Each of us has a calling in this life. And every calling, no matter what it is, if you're in Christ, is to faithfully serve the Lord. Now that quote, calling might require direct confrontation to the ways of being in a place like Elijah, called to confront directly things that are not so that they might be as they should, and calls to subvert from the inside. Both are calls to be faithful in places that are faithless, Serving the Lord as the good king and master versus serving other kings and lords. That is what Kings is presenting to us. So Ahab and Obadiah divide the land and went out in search of water. And then in verse 7, as Obadiah is on the way looking for water and vegetation, behold, Elijah meets him and Obadiah immediately recognizes the great prophet and says, is it you, my Lord? And I mean, the whole scene is kind of right out of the pages of Star Wars. I think of a Jedi hiding other Jedis, and then the Jedi comes out and sees his Jedi master. Yeah, you get it. That's the drama of the scene. And here we get a sense of the call of these prophets of God in the land of Israel. There were many of them at one point, and Jezebel has worked at exterminating them. And all but Elijah, Obadiah, and 100 more. And Elijah, in some sense, is known and recognized. And then there's this play on words in Hebrew. Is that 
you, Lord Elijah. And he answers, yes, it's me. Go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. That wordplay goes back to this idea of calling, serving Yahweh as master, by extension Elijah, versus serving Ahab as a master. Now, Obadiah's position inside is rife with danger. And there's more play on words here in Hebrew. Ahab tolerates the cutting off of the prophets, but is reluctant to cut off the cattle. Jezebel, the Baal worshiper, is willing to tolerate golden calves and Baal worship, but she can't tolerate the intolerance of Yahweh worshipers. So Obadiah is, is always in danger, and yet he serves the Lord. He's doing good trouble for which he might lose his life. And I think it's good to pause here. When you think about your calling, and I want to try to place this correctly, we all have occupations. If you are a kid, your occupation is to be a kid, to learn, to grow, to go to school. If you're a student at university, your call is to learn and to grow. You may also have a job off campus. If you're at home with kids, your job is to care and to teach and instruct. If you're at a a lab or in construction or medicine or helping people with money to count and manage it, whatever it is, you are called in that occupation to do what? Serve the Lord. Over and against whatever else you might serve. Jesus, our Lord, instructs us, no man can serve two masters. You will either hate the one or love the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God. And here he uses the Aramaic word mammon. And we translate it money, but it's more than money. It's actually a system, a whole way of being in the world. Andy Crouch, the writer, says mammon is the thing that allows us to have autonomous abundance. He tells the story about how they moved when they were first married and how everyone helped and there was lots of work. And then later in life when he moved again, He hired people, professionals. There was no sweating, no swearing. He says, this is the power of money. It allows us to get things done, often by means of others, without entanglement. Crouch says mammon is this magical way of having power. And when you have power, you don't have to be dependent on God. And mammon is some way set up or opposed to God in that way, as a system of autonomous living, the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah is called to confront the power of Ahab. And as we will see, the prophets of Baal, they are both contending for the Lord in their calling in different ways, but their calling is both in the Lord. And Yahweh is their Lord, not Ahab, no matter the force, the power, the threats that would be made by this would-be king. And the force of this is delivered in verse 8. Elijah says, I will show myself to Ahab. And then in verse 9, Obadiah says, Have I sinned that you would send me into Ahab and kill me? In verse 10, As the Lord lives, I have looked for you everywhere. We've taken oaths to the fact that we haven't found you. And in verse 11, now you say, go tell him I'm here. And the minute I do, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away elsewhere. And I will pay for this with my life. Even though I've served you, even though I've hid the prophets in caves, you say, go and tell him that I found you. Right? There's this legitimate fear Obadiah expresses. 
Now, Obadiah is no coward, yet he knows the results if he tells Ahab that he found Elijah and Elijah doesn't appear. This is real stuff. Obadiah knows how desperate Ahab and Jezebel are. Of course, their thinking is that they will offer Elijah, if they find him, to Baal, and then it will rain. But no rain for three and a half years. Imagine the desperation. Imagine the need to save face as the king. The terror of falling into his hands when Elijah is carried away by the breath of the Lord. And then in 15, Elijah answers Obadiah's fears. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. An oath sworn, and we get a sense of how Elijah is able to appear before a desperate king in face of all this shame when he says, as the Lord of hosts lives. That host refers to the mighty power that's always at the Lord's hand. Elijah is saying, I stand before the commander of all the armies of heaven. And there is in some sense of this, right? Like, how can we do the right thing? that gets us into good trouble. Like when we have this moment, those moments, like the reformer Martin Luther, where we say, here I stand. How do we do that? How can we have the courage to say no to the powers of mammon, the forces that seek to bend us into their mold? How do we do it? Well, with a rightful view of the world and the universe. There's really only one king who commands the host of heaven, And there is only one who can satisfy. There is only one that is true. There is only one that can deliver and rescue me and save me, right? Desperation sometimes brings us to these places where we can rightly see that the world and mammon has failed us and how it can't deliver us. And what is left is simply famine, empty, void of life. And right in that place, the Lord often brings us to this place of severe mercy, That's a term we've been using in the series. This place where we're struck by the reality of our own mortality and our inability to save ourselves. When you get to those places, desperate, the place of trouble and loss, the place of famine and threats and deaths, do you think God is at work? This is what carries the text along. The word of the Lord. God is at work. Even as Ahab and Obadiah are out there searching for relief, desperate for something that might end their affliction, Augustine calls this prevenient grace. There's always this before that's always at work. If injustice and brokenness exist in the world, it doesn't count as evidence against God, but instead is meant to provoke us that there is someone that can do something about it. Famine is meant to provoke Israel to repent. God shows mercy, and in this case, in Samaria, his mercy is severe, surrounded and clouded in death. The lack of rain is meant to provoke Israel to repentance. Now, Ahab is desperate, and yet Ahab does not do the thing that would bring, bring the rain for all his searching. Ahab still won't return to the Lord, and he won't repent. Why is this often the case? 
that even desperation won't cause us to turn to the Lord. Why does desperation often cause us to double down on our self-saving efforts? I will find the cause to my suffering. I will fix the cause. I will find someone to blame for what has been done to me so I can be healed. Now in verse 17, the meeting occurs when Ahab sees Elijah. Is that you, the troubler of Israel? Now in a sense, Elijah is trouble. But this trouble is good trouble. Because even though Elijah brings famine with him, that famine has the aim of bringing repentance, a return to the Lord. As Jesus says, do not fear what can kill the body, but fear what can destroy the soul. There is a greater fear than suffering and affliction. And this revelation, the revelation of that reality, is a severe mercy. Now let's sit in this for a second, because when we suffer, because our working environment is untenable, or because our fam- a family member is sick, or because we've lost our marriage, or because we age and are losing the things related to health and strength, or our child struggles with doubt and in some way is deconstructing, or when we walk ourselves through the valley of the shadow of death, who do we blame? And how do we relieve our fears and anxieties in that moment? Ahab, in desperation, is looking for the troubler of Israel. Get rid of him and it will rain. But Elijah responds, I have not troubled Israel. You have. You and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments from Joshua 6 and 7, where Achan became the troubler of Israel by stealing the plunder from Jericho. The Lord commanded Israel not to take anything from Jericho for themselves. But Achan brings treasure back, and because of this sin, Israel is defeated in a battle with Ai. And the troubler Achan brings the Lord's judgment. His anger, we're told, is kindled towards Achan. And in our text, we're told that God's anger is kindled towards Ahab and Jezebel and his own people for worshiping the Baals and the Asherah, the idols of strength and power and prosperity. Now, Ahab recognizes that the Lord brings the drought and the resulting famine, and he thusly blames Elijah, but he will not repent. He will not turn from his idols, even in his desperation. And so the severe mercy of the Lord in judgment does not bring his repentance. And the better question maybe this morning is, why does God preserve the wicked Ahab? Well, we'll see at least in part in the following pages It's all of God's severe mercy designed to bring Israel to repentance. This mercy demonstrates that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is a God who forgives, restores, and so repentance then is a gift of God. It's a gift because God has already decided to show mercy. Today I will bring rain on the land, the Lord says. And here's the reality. Israel's existence does not depend on their faithfulness, but on Yahweh. And repentance is a gift because it brings us back to the God who delights to show mercy. We get to repent. And so the trouble of famine is a good trouble because its design is meant to thrust us in our desperation upon the God who delights to show mercy. But that famine is severe. 
And right? That's why it's tempting to think that whatever caused the famine is the troubler. But the text tells us the trouble is good trouble. I want you to hear this. The good news this morning is that the Lord Jesus takes on good trouble. Both in his life and in his death, as he walked throughout Judea and Samaria, he confronted the powers, the twisted effects of sin, the working of the devil and his minions. And at the cross, he faced all that trouble that the power could lay upon his body. And willingly and gladly, he gave up his life in that moment to those powers. You see, human sin and rebellion bring judgment from God's hand. If, I'm left, if we're left to ourselves, that judgment would be the final word. The only way for there to be a different final word is for God to declare it. And God declares it once and for all in cross and resurrection. Christ willingly died so that in resurrection, he could confront the last enemy, death, and defeat it for all. Jesus provokes the powers on the cross and conquers them on it, and the proof of that is seen in resurrection. Here we find the Lord's promise to bless humanity and his world with a blessing that's related to the judgment. And now he enables us by the Spirit to then take up good trouble. Obadiah, provoked by the fear of the Lord, hides and feeds prophets in the face of Jezebel's threats. Why? Because he fears the Lord. Elijah is provoked to the good trouble of confronting Ahab and Jezebel in their worship of the Baals and leading Israel to do the same. Why? Because of the word of the Lord. We're told he is carried along by the breath of God as the provoker of Israel, as he faces the provoker of Israel face to face. Friends, good trouble provokes and preserves. They are the provokers of Israel, but the provokers who preserve God's word and enact his grace so the king and the people might see the God who shows mercy. This morning, the good news is that God offers mercy even to those who shake their fist at God in blame. Just like Ahab, you are invited in your desperation to repent and receive the good trouble of Jesus. We have provoked the Lord, yet the Lord in Christ shows us mercy. Even as you sit here today, in those seats, it's a sign of God's mercy upholding you. You're invited then, in response to that, to take up the good trouble. Good trouble is the preservation of the word of God in a place that tries to snuff that word out. You're invited into a calling of preserving God's word in a world that tries to snuff it out. Good trouble is the trouble that provokes one to repentance because repentance is a gift. Good trouble is bringing famine so that other things that happen in this world so that we might stop trusting in other gods and other things and trust in the Lord. Good trouble provokes lament, 
prayer, resistance in the face of powers so that justice might be done. Good trouble is turning over tables and calling the shepherds of God's people to the preservation of a house of prayer instead of a den of thieves. Good trouble is turning the other cheek and subjecting yourself to the powers so that the power of God might be seen in you. Friends, you're invited, just like Obadiah and Elijah, because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross, because of him facing all that trouble for you, to respond, offering your very life to him, and to be an actor of good trouble in your world. Let's pray. That we fail to lament and pray for justice to be done on earth as it is in heaven. pray that your spirit would do its work in our hearts this morning because, Father, we are prone to wander, Lord. Oh, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We are prone to trust mammon for our security and strength. We are prone to feign good trouble out of fear and shame. And so I pray this morning that you would, uh, by the Lord, who by his death and resurrection and our fear of God, that you would help us to be those who do not fear those who can kill the body, but our fear would be rightly attached to the one that can kill the soul. And in him, I pray that we would rest. I ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.